0: Join hosts Ben Schiller, Danny Nelson, and Cam Thompson as they seize the world of crypto.
1: Hello, and welcome to Carpe Consensus. This is a podcast from the Coindesk Podcast Network. And my name is Ben Schiller, and I am joined today by two eminent co hosts. One is Danny Nelson. Hi, Danny Nelson. Hello. And we're joined also by Cam Thompson. She's a Web3 reporter here at Coindesk.
2: Hey, how's it going?
1: It's going well. I'm full of beans today, so I'm excited for the show. And uh, Danny, why don't you explain to our dear listeners what the show is about?
3: Well, first off, Ben, I have to say, I just finished eating my garbanzo beans. Did you know that when you said we're full of beans? I did not, but that's an interesting uh, cosmic uh, connection there. You know what? The, The telepathy here is amazing. Anyway, here this week on Carpet Consensus, we are, as always, going to talk about the biggest trends in crypto and how they relate to Consensus, our big festival this year happening Ooh, in Austin, Texas.
1: Consensus, Ooh. Consensus, oh, yeah. Consensus. Yay. Get excited, yeah,
2: everyone. Ooh. 100 days. 100 days till Consensus. Days.
1: 100, days. 100 days. The Consensus'
3: opinion is that Consensus is the place to be. But um anyway, at Consensus, we hear the biggest voices in crypto talking about the biggest issues. And on this show, we get a little slice of that. This week on the show, we're going to talk about the stories sticking out to us. Is SBF losing his mind? You'll hear it from us. We're going to hear from Marta Belcher. Take a step into Danny's dungeon, where I give an update on some of the biggest changes to happen in the wake of our reporting. And a stop by at Cam's Corner
1: for looking NFTs, DAOs, and that crazy world. All right. Thanks, Danny. Let's get to it. Okay, we're going to get to our next segment now. It's called Inside the Desk. And you cannot be involved in crypto and reporting on crypto without, of course, following the continuing fallout from FTX. And particularly the one-man media show that is uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, or SBF as he's more commonly known. And we might have thought that the, the guy would, uh, to use a phrase, shut the fuck up. But uh, he apparently is not prepared to do that, despite much advice from his handlers to do that very thing. And the latest pronouncements he made came recently in a newly varnished sub-stack that he put out. And we had a story from our very own David Morris, who's our chief insights columnist. And it was titled very appropriately, I think, uh, Is Sam Bankmerfried Losing His Mind? So Danny, before I give my thoughts on that, why don't you give your reaction to that headline? Uh, do you think that SBF is losing his mind?
3: Well, that presupposes that he had one to begin with, which I don't know if we can fully say based on the events that have transpired. But I will say that I don't fully agree with uh, David Morris's take here. So we're going to get into that.
1: Okay. Well, I think the main bone of contention that David has with SBF is that his apparent apology and uh, what he calls a post-mortem or pre-post-mortem in the substack is nothing of the kind because it admits some key details of the scandal, and and particularly, obviously, details that point to uh, SPF's own culpability in the scandal. And and particularly, he omits from the account of what happened at FTX, the crucial detail of the commingling of funds between the main exchange, FTX, and Alameda, which was uh, the trading arm, which was supposed to be separate.
3: Well, you know, in his piece, Dave Morris calls out Bill Ackman for continually defending Sam. And I will say, that on that front, my mind's actually come around a bit. Bill Ackman is a noted defender of SBF. Uh, He also had a recent tweet thread where he explained his reasoning uh, for defending such an obvious criminal, which is basically that in the United States, we wait until a jury of one's peers actually render judgment, and that hasn't happened yet for Sam. And very interestingly, Bill Ackman has never seen anyone who is guilty act with such brazenness speaking to the media as Sam has here. Now, I'm not saying that that means that Sam is innocent, but it does mean that we should pay a little bit more attention to what Sam is saying and evaluate it thus far.
1: Fair enough. And I think we all abide by that principle. But on the other hand, when the facts are staring you in the face, you know, we are in our right mind to have an opinion about it. And and expecting us not to have an opinion about it is kind of a bit weird, you know?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think a big part of this too is, the timing of a lot of these posts in the substack. I mean, do you guys think it's in any way too soon to be revealing all of these details? Basically two months out of the official collapse of FTX. I mean, I'm just wondering, you know, why now? I mean, there's so much damage that still is going to be discovered in the next couple months. I'm curious if you guys have thoughts about that.
3: Well, it's never too soon to pull facts out of one's ass, and I think it's very important here that we say that that is what Sam is doing. He has repeatedly said that he doesn't have access to all his files, all this data, all this stuff about his time there, because Enron John, as I call the new CEO, is in control and doesn't want Sam there. And so this recent post, unless he actually does have access, is the product of Sam sitting down and thinking, hmm... I think the numbers were this on
1: that date. I mean, I think uh, it actually makes sense for SPF to continue to make this media tour, because uh, what does he have to lose at this point? And it's crucial for his case, surely, to impersonate this persona of the hapless entrepreneur who didn't quite know what he was doing, rather than the calculated criminal, which is what the uh, prosecutors want to say about him. And and I think this substack kind of reads exactly like that. And to say that he's writing a comprehensive post-mortem on a substack in an apparently confessional format, and then not to include those facts, uh, just amounts to uh, a lie, really.
3: Yeah, and according to some of the documents that uh, prosecutors have put forward so far, Sam himself ordered these special privileges for Alameda. Like, there's one line, I think, from the SEC case where it, it asserts that Sam ordered his deputies to Raise the uh, borrow limit on Alameda to basically infinity so that Alameda will never be stopped from borrowing funds. That is an action that you really
1: can't defend. All right, I think we've had enough SPF for, for one day, uh, but we'll obviously be watching that story very, very closely. Cam, uh, what's next for you?
2: All right, so new news from Yuga Labs. This is the company behind popular NFT collections, Bored Apes, Mutant Apes, CryptoPunks. They have a new NFT sort of gamified experience that I want to talk about, and it's very weird, so hang tight. This week, they are opening up a free mint to holders of Board Apes and Mutant Apes to mint a sewer pass, which is a special access NFT that will allow users to play this game Dookie Dash, which will also be for purchase on the secondary market so people who don't own these tokens can pick up a pass and play this game. And because of that, there has been some action in pumps of both of these collections it's all part of this bigger initiative called the jimmy the monkey trial which basically is a part of yuga's plan to expand its business into the metaverse which is other side and we're going to see a lot more of that this year apparently at the end of this dookie Dash game users who play this and get a high enough score will be able to reveal something that is undisclosed have you guys seen any of the details around this Dookie Dash game, all of this very, very interesting theme?
3: <laughs> Kim, I've, I've seen, I've heard too much already. You just said all these words, but you're ignoring the main point. And that is that Yuga Labs has decided that to start their push toward the other side, they're just leading into literal shit. They are creating a game around going into a sewer to get a key, and I watched the promo video, to get a key that the monkey ate and got stuck in his anus, and then that is how you get the free mint. It is actual sewer trash. I don't understand what they're doing.
2: You have to look at it outside of this theme of shit though, because, yes, it, might, it may appear like that. I mean, literally going into a sewer to play this game, Dookie Dash, we all know what that means. It's an interesting approach to bring this business that has been so NFT focused. You know, last year they acquired CryptoPunks and MeBits. It seems like there's finally some resolution as to what's going to be done with all of these different, very popular NFT collections. I mean, I think it's really cool, despite the fact that it is a very strange strategy in order to onboard its company and its community into the metaverse.
1: I, I don't know. I'm, I'm starting to feel deeply uncomfortable with all this scatological talk about sewers and me-bits and things. You know, I, I just think this is a step too far for Web3, and we're really going down into the gutter here, so um, literally, I'm just going to steer right clear of this, I think.
3: Maybe we have to give uh, Hugo credit for being extremely self-aware and thinking what does the market need? It needs actual filth. We must deliver for the people.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's just a perfect example of The avenues that degen culture is willing to take in accepting and embracing these different Web3 strategies, I mean, is part of a larger storyline, part of a narrative. And crypto Twitter is going crazy for it. You know, people are really excited. People are engaged. People are really, like, really deep, really deep into this degen element of the space.
3: Guys, the key is literally stuck in the monkey's anus. I'm not making this up. It's, It's like, are you kidding me?
1: That's a great quote there. You could use that as yeah. a sample. I,
3: I yep. don't know what it's else. It's literally stuck in the anus. <laughs> it's stuck in the monkey's anus.
1: <laughs> Guys, this is in the promotional room. Yeah. Okay, for our next segment, we're going to do an interview with Marta Belcher. She is a civil liberties and crypto attorney and a well-known figure in that space. Welcome to the show, Marta.
4: Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
1: It's great to have you. Uh, We haven't seen each other since Austin, Texas last year since June uh, when we discussed Ukraine. That was a nice panel.
4: That was fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to this year's consensus as well.
1: It's going to be great. It's going to be in uh, April in Austin. Great. So we're going to talk about the kind of year ahead in regulation and look at the kind of impacts for users and particularly for what you're particularly concerned about, which is privacy and civil liberties. Just the first question, So, just talk about uh, SBF and FTX, we can't avoid that topic. Uh, I mean, how has that whole fiasco changed the regulatory conversation in DC, would you say?
4: So fundamentally with FTX, I actually think that it's important to recognize that what happened with FTX has absolutely nothing to do with crypto. What happened with FTX was actually run-of-the-mill fraud. And when it comes to committing crimes, it doesn't matter what technology you use to commit fraud, right? It doesn't matter if you use paper and pen or email or cryptocurrency or or cash or seashells. It doesn't matter. Fundamentally, what matters is that you committed fraud. And that's something that's already illegal. So I really think that regulators should be looking at this and seeing this as run-of-the-mill fraud, not something that has to do with cryptocurrency. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is regulators really responding with some potential regulations that would be really bad, um, in fact, devastating for the cryptocurrency space. And I think that's really not fair in large part because I think that one of the things that FTX actually underscored is that centralized technologies and having to trust centralized intermediaries like FTX is problematic. And actually, it's so important to have the ability to custody your own funds, to interact with others in a decentralized way where you don't have to trust a third party.
1: So, I mean, there's the, there's the reality and then there's a reality. And the reality is that people in Washington now are blaming crypto and people acting in crypto for what happened. And that seems to be emboldening some critics of crypto. And I'm thinking particularly of uh, Elizabeth Warren, who's the you know, senator from Massachusetts, obviously. Uh, And she came out with a bill that you've uh, strongly criticized, and and you wrote an op-ed about it recently. What is wrong with that financial surveillance bill? I mean, wouldn't it fix some of the problems that FTX showed up?
4: So in the hearing that the Senate held about FTX, Senator Warren and uh, also Senator Marshall from the Republican side introduced a bill called the Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act. And this was uh, something that was potentially absolutely devastating to the cryptocurrency space, Um, it would effectively create a total surveillance regime on cryptocurrencies and actually make it effectively impossible to operate within a blockchain network uh, in the United States. Uh, And this was actually introduced in response to FTX, but would actually make the problems with FTX much, much worse. So what this bill would do is, is two different things. So first of all, the bill would require basically every participant in a blockchain network to register as a money service business. So that includes, and it specifically calls out miners, wallet creators, software developers, validators, nodes, and and also token holders. Um, The bill actually says any independent network participant who has control over network protocols is actually required to register as a money service business. And so what that means is you have to register with the government as a money service business. You have to develop and maintain these really complicated anti-money laundering programs you have to collect the personal information of every person who uses that software and file reports with the government, basically spy on your users. And really, this is not possible to comply with. It, first of all, it's just not onerous for individual miners or validators or network participants to be registering as money service businesses. Um, and second of all, in most cases, you actually can't verify the identity of the user's who are, are using your software. That's sort of the whole point. So it's literally just impossible to comply with. And then the second thing that the bill does is it effectively bans privacy-enhancing technologies, including privacy coins, in blockchain networks. So it prohibits all financial institutions, which includes all of those network participants I mentioned, from handling, using, or transacting with digital asset mixers, privacy coins, and any other anonymity-enhancing technologies. Um, So this is really quite shockingly broad and would would really grind the entire blockchain ecosystem in the U.S. to a halt. Uh, And furthermore, it wouldn't do anything to protect against a future FTX. In fact, it would make that worse by making it effectively impossible to self-custody your assets in the United States and, and making it so that literally always you are required to transact through centralized intermediaries. So this is really unfortunate, and um, yes, I was delighted to write an op-ed for CoinDesk about that.
1: Right. So just talking about privacy, I mean, do you think there's understanding in DC currently about the importance of privacy, or do you think people are generally of a mind that it doesn't really matter—that you know, it's more important to know who's transacting than it is to assure people's anonymity?
4: Yeah. Um, it's a great question. So I think that when it comes to issues of civil liberties interestingly enough, you often get sort of strange bedfellows. So you'll often get people on the right and people on the left, sometimes people on the far right, sometimes people on the far left, who really agree on issues of privacy, civil liberties. So it's really quite interesting to see. And I think it really depends on individuals. I think there are some really amazing lawmakers who deeply understand the importance of civil liberties, the importance of privacy, and who care a lot about that on both sides of the aisle. And that is something that is really fantastic to see. But then you also have people who are really uh, proposing things that would impose uh, sweeping surveillance requirements on cryptocurrency and really expand the mass surveillance of the traditional banking system onto the crypto space. So I think it, it varies widely and it really comes down to whether what you're valuing is fundamental civil liberties.
1: What are the ways in which we can assure people's privacy going forward, you know, when they're transacting with crypto?
4: I think that there is an offensive game and I think that there is a defensive game. And so I think on the defensive side, I think it's so important to make sure that we don't have bills like Senator Warren's bill get passed that really extend surveillance within the cryptocurrency space to make it basically a total surveillance regime. So, I think that is so important and is only going to become more important in the coming year, particularly in the US, but really around the world. We've really been seeing over the last year things like, for example, Tornado Cash, where we saw Tornado Cash, an entire protocol, getting added to the OFAC sanctions list merely because it facilitates private transactions. Um, so, one thing that we've really been seeing is increasing attacks on the ability to transact privately. I think we're going to see that a lot more. And I think we need to play a defensive game and make sure that we really are fighting back against that extension of surveillance onto cryptocurrency. I also think there's this broader and perhaps longer term offensive game. And what I mean by that is, I actually believe that a lot of the surveillance of the traditional financial system is actually unconstitutional. And so right now, if you are making transactions using banks or or other financial institutions, a lot of that information gets turned over to the government by default without a warrant. So how does that happen? So the Fourth Amendment actually says that basically, if the government wants to get information about citizens, In the united states what they need to do is actually have probable cause go to a court and get a judge to approve a warrant and then they can collect information about you so that's what the fourth amendment says that's one of our basic civil liberties but that's not what happens what happens is under the bank secrecy act and many other bills and uh, laws out there that are in force massive amounts of information about people's financial transactions get collected and then get turned over to the government by default with no warrant, no suspicion, there's no reason to suspect individuals. All of this information about perfectly innocent people is getting turned over to the government. How does that happen? Well, that actually happens because of a thing called the third party doctrine. And the third party doctrine is this idea that if you hand over your information to a third party, like a bank, then that it, you actually lose your reasonable expectation of privacy in that information. As a result, Massive amounts of information get turned over to the government with no warrant. Um, Now, one thing that we've seen in the last few years is that the Supreme Court has really been looking at the third party doctrine and chipping away at it, and recognizing that the types of information that you could get back in the 1970s when we saw these precedents come about regarding the third party doctrine was just wildly different than the massive amount of information you can get about someone's life based on information they give to third parties today, right? Every second, we're giving out information to third parties, whether it's the location of our cell phone, things we're clicking, just massive amounts of information. And so the Supreme Court has really been chipping away at that. And I actually think that if we were able to fight the existing financial surveillance and challenge the constitutionality of that, we might actually be able to find that the Supreme Court actually agrees that that mass surveillance is unconstitutional. So I think that's something that's perhaps much longer term, but I I have some hope that there is actually a way to offensively decrease the amount of financial surveillance in today's system.
1: I just want to talk a bit more about the kind of political situation in DC these days. So uh, obviously there were a lot of politicians who took donations from SBF and now politicians are giving the money back. And there seems to be a sort of new distrust in DC of crypto in general and the industry in particular. Um, which is gonna make it harder for the industry to to make its case. And uh, we've been hearing that lawmakers aren't even taking meetings and and phone calls anymore. They're just sort of dismissing the whole thing. I mean, they're not even looking to crack down. They just don't wanna have anything to do with it. How would you sort of think about the kind of changing relationship between uh, the industry and DC and politicians in general? How, How has that evolved over the year, would you say?
4: So one of the things that we've seen in DC for a long time, that's been really interesting, is that cryptocurrency really became kind of a partisan issue. So it started out sort of bipartisan and then became quite partisan, um, where we saw a lot of Democrats being anti-crypto and then a lot of Republicans being pro-crypto. And one of the things I noticed over the last year or two was cryptocurrency becoming much less partisan. Um, which is something that I was really encouraged by. And many senators and members of Congress on the Democratic side really starting to deeply understand and care about cryptocurrency, which includes Senator Gillibrand, Senator Cory Booker, in addition to the sort of stalwart cryptocurrency supporters like Representative Emmer or Representative McHenry. One of the things that I think has happened in recent months with FTX is I do think there are still quite a few um, stalwart and outspoken defenders of cryptocurrency. Uh, Representatives Emmer and McHenry are are two examples of that. But I also think that you've seen on both sides of the aisle, actually, not not just on one side, you've seen a pretty big reaction as a result of FTX. Um, And one example of that is not only was uh, Senator Warren able to introduce this bill, but she also got Republican support. She actually had a, a co- co-sponsor of the bill who was from the Republican side. It remains a really interesting space and really difficult to navigate in the aftermath of FTX. I am hopeful that we can get the message across to Congress that what happened with FTX was, really had nothing to do with cryptocurrency, but... I think it is likely to be a pretty difficult and active year ahead in DC, really navigating through the aftermath of FTX.
1: So, apart from the Warren bill, uh, which is to do with money laundering, I mean, ostensibly anyway, what are the other sort of issues and uh, bills that might appear this year, do you think?
4: Yeah. So, you know, we have a couple of bills out there that have been sort of in the process of being reviewed and edited and discussed, and those include the uh, Lummis Gillibrand Responsible Financial Innovation Act, um, which was introduced by, again, a bipartisan, you know, one Democrat and one Republican. And then you also have the DCCPA. Um, now the interesting thing about the DCCPA um, is that there is a lot of speculation and talk about the extent to which that bill was being pushed by FTX. And so one thing that it'll be interesting to see in 2023 is to what extent do lawmakers back away from something like the DCCPA as a result of FTX's involvement?
1: Can you just give a quick summary of what that's about?
4: So the DCCPA is the Digital Commodities Consumer Protection Act. And it uh, was sponsored by Senator Stabenow. And the idea with the DCCPA was it was supposed to be sort of a general regulation of crypto bill. Obviously, the the text of the DCCPA was very much in flux at the time of FTX. Similarly, we saw a pretty general regulatory bill with the, uh, the Lemus-Gillibrand bill. So those were sort of almost competing bills. And a lot of questions were being worked out around regulation at the CFTC versus the SEC you know, regulation of stable coins, you know, all sorts of different aspects of, of regulating cryptocurrency. And those two bills, I'm not sure what's going to happen in this, um, this coming session, but definitely will be interesting to see.
1: I think we'll leave it there. So Marta, thanks for being such a bright light uh, in, in the gloom here and all your insights are much appreciated. And we'll look forward to seeing you in Austin in April.
4: Thanks so much for having me, Ben. And I'm so looking forward to seeing you in Austin at Consensus as well.
0: Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code CARPE to get 15% off your pass. Visit coindesk.com slash consensus or check the link in the show notes. All
1: right, we're going to get to my favorite segment now. Uh, It's called Danny's Dungeon, and it needs a bit of a queue up here. Cam? Ooh,
2: into Danny's Danny's Dungeon. Dungeon.
3: Welcome to Danny's Dungeon, a segment that needs an introduction. I am Danny? Um, and okay, wait. <laughs> oh God, you are Danny. <laughs> I am Danny. Continue, <laughs> well, we are all on laughing gas today. Oh my God! This week on the dungeon, we're gonna talk recaps. One recap of a story I had last August about Saber. In my reporting, I uncovered that these brothers had created basically false identities to perpetuate the idea that they had an authentic developer community in order to pump the value of his token and of the Solana ecosystem at whole. So I wrote this report on Sabre and Ian Macalino in August. And now in January, I think six months later, if my math serves me correct, I've broken the news that the DOJ is actually investigating these guys, the Macalino brothers, for potential high crimes and misdemeanors
1: associated with the Sabre Stablecoin Exchange. Well, first of all, Danny, congratulations on this story once again. Uh, It's real impact journalism. Do you want to just run us through the uh, main charges that the DOJ is looking at? Well, it's important to to
3: note here that there are no charges just yet. Well, I mean, accusations, I mean. Well, again, there are no accusations just yet from the (laughs) DOJ. This is simply them looking into information.
2: So, Danny, you are the Solana Beat Reporter. You are very well-versed in this ecosystem. Talk to me a little bit about the months following your scoop and some of the action that had been going on. It's different ways that people were kind of discovering the fact that Ian had created these false profiles and built out this entire ecosystem that was really just one person.
3: Well... In the immediate aftermath of my story, there was a lot of just talk about what this meant, that these two brothers had created false identities in an attempt to dupe the system. In the month that followed, they actually were pushed out of their venture capital company called Protagonist VC uh, in response to the story, from what I understand. They also basically were excommunicated from the Solana developer community. I've heard stories of Ian, who is a very prolific and well-versed developer, attempting to make a comeback in Solana, and the developer community basically kicking him out of Telegram group chats, saying, we don't want you here. So there's been a huge repercussion for these brothers for duping the ecosystem.
2: Um, And another question I have is, This whole concept of double counting, this was something that a lot of, you know, from what I'm aware, DeFi Llama changed their metrics immediately after you published the story. How have conversations around this concept of TVL, total value locked, and double counting these metrics, you know, been circulating in the months following?
3: Well, like me, when I forget to take my meds, it's completely lost. Everyone's completely moved on. No one's talking about it. Let Sorry, what, it. what does that have to it. do with your life? Yeah. yeah. All right, let me rephrase that section. <laughs> like me, when I forget to take my ADD meds, everyone has moved on. No one's talking <laughs> at all about TVL. This is basically just yesterday's news. There was that immediate change in how it was counted, or rather how DeFi Llama displayed TVL, but no one's really thinking about how to improve on the metric.
1: So what are the next steps in this story, Danny? Are you going to be uh, reporting other staff? Uh, What's the next kind of move in the case? Well, I really don't know. I mean, the way that
3: investigations work is we're not really quite sure what will happen until DOJ brings charges. And there's no guarantee that they will in this case, or there's no guarantee rather that the U.S. Attorney's Office will. So it's a wait and see game just to find out what's happened to one of my favorite stories of 2022.
2: Hey guys, it's Cam's Corner. Welcome back. You know, we got pretty weird earlier, but uh, we're going to keep that thread flowing. We're just going to make it weirder over here. We're going to talk about weird DAOs and DAOs in general. Okay, okay. I guess we get the the intro. Danny, do you want to chime in? Intro this, hype it up.
3: Weird DAOs time. It's the dungeon, but now it's Cam's Corner. I don't know. Is that what you want?
2: Perfect. That's perfect. Spot on. That was great. Okay, let's get into it. So I was at CES a couple weeks ago and was talking to a friend of mine who works at Chainlink and she was telling me about this ink DAO, which is basically a DAO where in order to be a member of it, you have to get tattooed on you anywhere. The letters ERC721, which is essentially the smart contract standard for an NFT. And once you have this tattoo, once you have your proof of ink and you show it off to this group, then they hold meetups and there's a community centered around people who have this tattoo and I'll share this, you know, Web3 fascination. So anyways, got me thinking. It's pretty weird. Interesting. Kind of cool. Might be something I would do. But anyways, what do you guys think?
1: I mean, I think this is great. Uh, I'm not personally into tattoos, but I admire people who get them. And why not, you know, tokenize tattoos, just like we tokenize everything. And God bless them. Kim, if I, if I get this tattoo
3: and I join the club, what does it do for me? Like, do I just get to be in a Discord and talk to other people with the tattoo? Like, what's the point?
2: The point is, well, it's very interesting because from what I understand, you know, it's not a super like crypto heavy DAO, where, you know, you might be actually voting on different proposals. You know, I could be wrong, maybe that they're working on that in the background that I'm not aware of. But there is this community element, which a lot of people join DAOs for. I mean, Danny, you're a part of DAO. Talk about that a little bit.
3: I am a part of DAO, or as it now calls itself simply Lynx, because it's moving heavily away from just the crypto element LinksDAO is a golf NFT club whereby my ownership of this NFT gives me access to a club and also membership rights at a golf course that the organization plans to buy. What it doesn't do is give me any actual control or authority over what happens at all, which is a pretty essential part of the crypto idea of a DAO that is democratizing and distributing the controls over. In organizations. So that's the big shift we see in DAOs, whether or not they actually are decentralized autonomous organizations. And often you see that some of the most popular iterations, the most mainstream ones, aren't actually DAOs. They just use the, the DAO word as the language to collectivize themselves around.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting point. I think over time, if DAOs continue to take off, then surely uh, regulators will need to step in and say, you can't use the word DAO unless you're doing X, X, and X. Because uh, as you say, Danny, there's a lot of kind of false advertising here and people shouldn't be able to say they're doing a DAO if they're not doing it. That's my uh, take on it. But just uh, on DAO, I mean, have they made any actual progress in buying a golf course? Uh, Are you going to be playing St. Andrews anytime soon, Danny? Certainly not. They're certainly not going to buy St. Andrews. But from
3: my understanding, there's progression toward buying a golf course. I'm reasonably certain that it's going to happen in the coming months. Again though, one thing that this won't give me is any actual ownership over the golf course. I'll just have basically the rights to buy a membership there, which I'm still excited about, but I'm not going to own a golf course, which when Linkstyle launched was the selling point.
1: Yeah, Cam, I just want to ask you about the Inc Dow one. I mean, is there any kind of nod here to the infamous Mike Navagrat's Terra Luna tattoo that he so brazenly put on his arm only for that stablecoin ecosystem to collapse spectacularly?
2: I mean, I think that among a lot of people who get tattoos about things that they're super passionate about or super into, you know, there's this sense of community around it. I'm just speaking from experience. I have a lot of tattoos, so I'm super into this, this whole idea. And I think for, you know, this InkDAO, it's the same thing. There's a lot of people who are super excited about NFTs or involved in Web3, whether they're building, whether they're a collector, whether they are super involved in crypto Twitter. I mean, there's this element of excitement about shared passion for something that's pretty new and exciting.
3: So Kim, you've got all these tattoos. Are you going to join InkDAO?
2: You know, I'm thinking about it. High key. Hi, key. I mean, I cover NFTs. I'm super involved in learning about the space and meeting people who are collectors, builders, releasing collections, artists, whatnot. I mean, also, I just, I think it's a fun idea. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I would.
3: Is there a font that you're supposed to follow or some standard?
2: There's a standard. There is a font you're supposed to follow that spells it out so that everyone has the same exact so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, we'll, we'll see what happens in the next next few weeks. Maybe come back a few episodes later and I will I will officially be a member of this DAO by proof of ink. You know, it, it is a tattoo. We have to remember that.
3: That's true. And there's a lot of people who might get this. And I wonder, are they really going to want this going forward? Like, let's say you did get it a couple weeks ago because you really were a big fan of Yuga Labs and all of a sudden they come out with their next NFT collection and the anchor of this collection is a key that's sticking out of a monkey's anus. Are you really, at that point, still feeling as bullish on NFTs as you used to?
2: Like I said, a lot of people who are super excited about this are very in that D-Gen culture, and I think a lot of people who are D-Gens would be pretty enthusiastic about it and wouldn't really be bothered by the fact that there might be a key inside a monkey's anus.
1: Danny, you're obsessed with this anus and this key. (laughs) It's ridiculous.
3: Can we drop
2: it?
1: I, (laughs) I... I am obsessed with
3: it. Danny, can
2: maybe you please I join the mint? I think you should play Doogie Dash and then I don't have and a then board come back to this conversation later. Yeah, you if don't need you a board get... ape. You just have to oh, buy the sewer pass. You can buy the sewer pass on the secondary market.
1: Yeah, Danny, it's it's time you put your anus where your mouth is. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> what? That's a lot <laughs> worse.
3: <laughs> That's a lot worse. You know what? Let me look, it up. Let me look it up. Going to open C guys, I'm going to open C right now. Open C.
2: It's not available yet. It's not available. Oh, it's not yet. available
3: yet. Okay. No.
2: By the time this episode comes out, it will.
3: When it does drop, I will see if there's a dookie in me. And maybe I will buy it. Maybe I will. The problem for me is I'm really bad at like internet games. I have very slow reflexes. And so there's a zero percent chance that I'd actually win this thing.
2: Who knows? I mean
3: I am worse at League of Legends than Sam Bankman Fried if that's even possible to be. So Well, you don't play guys, League of
2: Legends during like during this recording? You're not just like in the background, just like gaming.
3: If if I did, then our trusty producer would call me out for the clickety clacks. So no, I would never do such a thing. I could not play that game as we record.
2: Yep. Alright. Well, that was weird. Thanks for joining everyone. That was Carpe Consensus. I'm Cam. Thanks, Ben and Danny.
1: Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Bon chance, everybody.
2: Woo. Bon chance. And tune in next week, next Thursday. Got more exciting stuff for you. Keep on listening.
1: Bye. Bye. Coindesk presents Crypto Crooks, Season 1, BitConnect. $2.4 billion. Thousands of victims. Mysterious deaths. Untold misery worldwide. Once you start digging, you never know where it might lead.
0: Carpe Consensus is a Coindesk production, executive produced by Jared Schwartz, and produced and edited by Eleanor Paul. Have any questions or comments? Email us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Subject line, Carpe Consensus. Thanks for listening and see you next week.
1: Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time?